So in honor of my mother, I went onto the internet and I went to find some of the weirdest and strangest nativity scenes that we have, because it's very common decoration. And there are some doozies out there. So here's my top 10 of funny nativities. All right, here we go. Number 10. Nothing says Christmas like moose. I actually like it too. It's kind of fun. If you're in Canada, that would be like totally legit. Okay, number nine. Uh, you know what? We should move on. Number eight. If you're for you conspiracies out there, conspiratists, conspiracy. Oh, man, I'm bad with words today. Yes, so that's an alien nativity. Number seven. This is like geek fest nativity. So I don't know how sacrilegious this is, but um, just so much to love about that. You got the three Darth Vaders. You got the Dark Knight as your angel. Bill and Ted and a legion of Pokemon? I, I, I don't know what the dinosaur represents, but okay, moving on, number six. This is my kind of nativity. This is the na lazy nativity. This is my level of artwork. This is what my nativity would be if I had to make one. Number five, nativity assemble. <laughs> Enough said. Baby Hulk, I love that. My favorite part is Hawkeye, who is thoroughly upset at being um, put in the donkey outfit. <laughs> Moving on, number four. This is the meativity. <laughs> I, can get, I, can, I can get behind that. All right, number three. <laughs> okay, so that makes sense, right? You get it? Yeah. <laughs> it takes a while to click sometimes. Yes, that's the DeLorean. There was another one that had a Doctor Who phone booth next to the nativity as well. But anyway, moving on, number two. And Mary thought that giving birth to a baby was the scariest thing that she was going to have to deal with that night. <laughs> but my favorite, number one, the hipster nativity scene. So much to take in here. From the three wise men on segways to the solar-powered nativity stable where Mary and Joseph taking a selfie with coffee. We've got the organic farmer with 100% organic cow and a gluten-free feed in the stall there. That's so there's our nativities. But you know what? Of all of the nativities, the weirdest and, and, and strangest nativities that there are, the strangest one might be the real nativity itself. It is, I mean, it's a common theme. We, we've seen the nativity scene and Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, or in this case, Mary apparently gave birth to a three-year-old Jesus. That must have been painful. Um, so you've got the scene, and you've got the shepherds, and the wise men, and all that sort of stuff. But the more we understand the story of the birth of Jesus, the more we realize that something is not quite right. There are a lot of manger things going on. <laughs> I'm going to wait until someone laughs. Thank you. Pity laughs are accepted. All right, so the whole thing seems a little, wait for it, upside down, right? You get that because, yeah, okay, cool. So over the next few weeks, uh, what I want to do is I want to have a look at a few of the characters of the nativity that just seem to not quite fit, that seem to, they don't belong in the story of Jesus coming into the earth, all right? And the first one that I want to look at is the most, the strangest, the most out-of-place person in the nativity. 
And that is the baby Jesus himself. All right? Sacrilege, right? I mean, <laughs> we're getting into the heretical stuff there. But Jesus does not belong in the nativity scene. Now, follow me on this one, okay? But to, to understand why I'm saying this, we need to rewind the tape a little bit. And we're actually going to touch on some of the stuff that Nate's already been talking about. So, back in the Old Testament, okay? So, your Bible is split up into two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's split up exactly around the story of Jesus. Jesus begins the New Testament. Before that, before Jesus turned up, is this two-thirds of the book is the Old Testament, the history leading up to the birth of Jesus. And during this time, God's people, the Israelites, have been going through a lot of difficult situations. Right? They've found themselves conquered by other nations. They've found themselves being um, turned into slaves to other nations. All their fault, of course, they weren't following God, and that's why they got themselves into those messes. But God still loved them, right? and God still cared for them, and He promised them that He would deliver them, that He would rescue them. He promised them several times that He was going to send someone, a hero, who was going to save them. That hero became known as the Anointed One or Messiah. That's what that word Messiah means, is Anointed One chosen one, um, special hero from God. So God's going to send this, and there's several passages throughout the Old Testament, the prophecies that Nate was talking about, that foretold or, or sort of predicted the fact that this hero would come, and then some elements about what his life would look like, including being born in Bethlehem, including being born to a virgin. Now, one of these prophecies comes from the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament. Daniel is my favorite book. He's my favorite Bible character. I love it, and um, I gush a little bit when I talk about it, but it's, it's my favorite. But in the middle of, uh, Daniel is in a period of time where the Israelites are, again, they're slaves in a place called Babylon, okay? Things are bad. Things are horrible. They're wondering when God is going to send this Messiah. When is he going to send someone to save them? Because things are bad. And as we think about them, it's not hard to think about us. I mean, we never really have trouble thinking about us, but we think about some of the things going on in our own lives. Have a think about that. Place in front of you, picture the situation that you, comes to mind when you think of trouble in your life. Maybe life's going really well for you, but I'm guessing most of us have something that we're struggling with. Most of us have something that we're afraid of. Most of us have something that is kind of causing strife in our lives that we really wish God would save us from, something that we really would like a Messiah to fix, right? This is how the people felt. They're sitting in Babylon. In fact, this O Come, O Come, Emmanuel um, song is written in the perspective of people in Babylon who are in exile. That's what they call that time period, the exile. And they're waiting for their Messiah. Come, Emmanuel. Anyway, so as they're waiting there, Daniel has a dream. And God gives him a dream about, it's basically a roadmap of what's going to happen from that point on all the way up until Jesus comes, which is pretty nice. And so he has this dream about these beasts. It's a really cool dream. There's so much symbology in there, but I really don't let me start on it because we'll be here forever. But he has this dream about these four beasts that come out of the ocean. And they represent four kingdoms 
that are going to rise up to power and they are going to oppress God's people. The first one was Babylon, so that had already happened. They were already oppressing God's people. But then after Babylon would come the Persians, and after the Persians would come the Greeks, and then this fourth beast, which was more terrifying, more powerful than all of the others, was Rome. So in this dream, this terrifying Rome beast, he didn't know it was Rome at the time, but that's what we know from history happened. During this time period, there's chaos and and people are being crushed by this beast. But then God shows up and this court scene opens and God sits on his throne and he starts judging the nations. And he subdues all of these beasts. In fact, the fourth beast he destroys. And then this other character turns up on the scene. He comes on the clouds, this one like a son of man. In fact, I'm going to read these verses here. This is what Daniel saw. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the son of man, like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one, that is God, and was led into his presence. So this is a special person because no one else gets led into God's presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty or control over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And then later on, he kind of compounds this thing. He says, then the the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will last forever, and his rulers will serve and obey him. So this is the picture of what the Messiah is going to be like. This kingly, powerful figure who will control all of the nations. All of these nations who are attacking and hurting God's people will become subdued and controlled and destroyed by this this figure, this son of man, this Messiah, this hero. He's a powerful, kingly, mighty figure, right? That's what people are looking forward to. All right, let's fast forward to the manger, the nativity scene. What's wrong with the nativity then? Why do you think Jesus does not seem to fit into this picture that we have of the nativity? Why why would you think he doesn't really fit? What's wrong with this picture? He's a baby. Powerless, interesting word. The Messiah is powerful, baby, powerless. Anything else? It's very good. Not even a house. And where's the palace for this king, right? Where's the entourage of attendants? Where's the, the, uh, all the people surrounding him, the armies and the, the royalty and, and, and all of these visitors who have come to, to be incredibly, to, to kind of revel in the presence of royalty? Not just human royalty, but godly royalty. Where's that? Where is the pomp? Where is the spectacular display? Sorry? Yes? He has. And that's what struck me about this, because we've talked before about how poor he was 
and he's unspectacular, and, and it's kind of very plain, his birth. But also, it struck me, his vulnerability. Think about the situation. Amy, you, you would have a, a special sort of insight to this because you are both a midwife and you're pregnant. Let's follow the story of Jesus, shall we? First of all, his heavily pregnant mother, see, Amy, you're like the perfect picture for Christmas at the moment. Like, you are very. This is wonderful. I love it. So, heavily pregnant woman is forced to travel from one part of the country all across to the other part, doesn't fly on a plane, rides on a donkey or a cart or some sort of primitive transport along bumpy roads, dangerous roads. Is this, would you recommend anyone do this if they, if they were your client? No. And then is born into a, 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 a manger with animals around. What sort of problems do you think we would have if we had animals around? Hygiene is a major issue here. He is vulnerable to, to infection, to disease. I mean, birthing babies is, is hazardous enough without all this. I remember, Molly's not here, I can tell the story. So um, when we had our second child, Dylan, we, he came a lot quicker than we were expecting, and so we had him at home. Um, not the plan. And so I called the midwife, and I said, ah, we're having this baby at home. I was not calm. And she's like, I'm coming. And she raced. She was like an hour away, but she got there in like 20 minutes. <laughs> I don't know how she did that legally. But she, before she started coming, she quickly called up her backup midwife to come and to help out. Then she says, you call an ambulance. So me, I call an ambulance. So an ambulance turned up. So by the end of it all, we had four medical professionals in my lounge with my wife and her baby. We didn't need any of them because the baby just came, whether or not he was supposed to or not. The baby just came, and so the baby was already born when anyone turned up. But we had four medical professionals turn up. Not because they were needed, but just in case. Just in case something happened, just in case there was a complication, we had those four there. Do you know we got that not because we were important, but because we had names and lived in the country? That's all that was required for them to provide all of these services. This is the Son of God, and there is not a medical professional in sight. And none of the medical professionals of those days really be able to do much of anything anyway. They didn't even understand infections. They didn't understand the hazards of having babies, which is why the mortality rate during that time was very, very high. So he's completely vulnerable. He's a baby, for, first of all. I mean, why would he not just send a human adult? But he's always a baby. He's in a disease-ridden stable. He's in a very tumultuous time politically. There's uprisings and riots, all sorts of stuff going on because no one likes the Romans and there's all sorts of plans to try and get rid of the Romans. So there's all sorts of firefights going on. And then just as a cherry on top, the king ruling in the area doesn't like baby Jesus because he's been called the king of the Jews. So now he's hunting him and trying to kill him. Is that the kind of situation we should be bringing the Savior of the world into? Incredibly vulnerable, incredibly weak. He's incredibly weak. This is our Messiah, a weak, vulnerable, helpless child. And you know what? I'm going to say something that might come across wrong at first. 
But we get that sometimes, don't we? Like if we're, if we're really honest with ourselves, and we may not say this out loud because we're afraid of what people will think of us, but sometimes we get a weak Messiah. Think about this. We see situations in our lives, things that we know God has power to fix, power to deal with, but he doesn't. We have friends who are sick and they die. We have people who deal with miscarriages. We have people who get cancer. We get people who around the world are arrested, imprisoned, beaten, and raped for being Christians and for other reasons. We see this happening and we think, this picture of a weak Messiah sometimes fits more than we want it to. And again, we wouldn't say that because we feel bad about thinking it. Sometimes we do. The Bible claims so much power for God. And I follow God. Sometimes my life seems to be defined by weakness. What's up with that? Oh, I'm actually going to answer that question, but please jump in. Yeah, okay, okay. Okay, sure. No, I, I would say he's not causing it, but he's not saving it either. Sure, there's things that happen that there's reasons why this happens. We can follow maybe a trail that someone did something and this is the repercussions of that. Not sure. But it's not karma. No, 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 not karma. I, I'm, yeah, but there's a, sometimes it is consequence of sin. But then sometimes we would say, but Jesus forgives sin and why am I still being punished for it? Hold that thought though. Because we are going to get back, especially that concept of perception of Jesus. This idea of our lives being defined by weakness is something that maybe we resonate with. And it is something that one of our friends from the New Testament, a guy named Paul, wrote a lot of the New Testament, planted a lot of churches, did a lot of really cool stuff. He resonates with this as well. In fact, when he often describes his life, he describes it as a string of weaknesses. I mean, he was doing, he was on fire for God. Yeah, he made some mistakes before he became a Christian, but man, he was doing some stuff for God. He was putting all the rest of us ministers to shame for what he was doing. But man, he was beaten. He was persecuted. He was shipwrecked a bunch of times. I mean, all sorts of horrible stuff happened to him. And there's one particular thing that happened that might help um, understand what's going on here a little bit. It comes from 2 Corinthians 12, <clears throat> verses 7 to 10. And he's talking about some of the things that are going on in his life, and he talked about um, this problem that had turned up in his life, that God put in his life. It says, So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, 
a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, now catch this, because this is the crux of it here. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. And then this classic line, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is what comes right back down to perceptions. When I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know exactly what Paul meant by a thorn in the flesh. There's a lot of different theories floating around. Truth is, we don't know. I think part of the reason is so that we can all relate to him in our different ways. You know, we can all relate to having a thorn in the flesh. That's something that is just getting at us that we can't get rid of. And we beg God to take it away. And this answer keeps coming back. You don't need me to take it away. My grace is sufficient. My strength works best in weakness. Think about that. My strength works best in weakness. God does his best work when it seems like there's no hope. When it seems like there's nothing that we can humanly do to persevere, to keep putting one foot in front of the other. When it seems like from a human perspective, everything has fallen down, that's when God shines. Why? Because then there is no possible explanation for how we are surviving other than God himself, other than his power. If you look back through the Bible, you can see this happening again and again and again, this MO that God has of putting people in hopeless situations so that when he rescues them, they can't claim any of it for themselves. It is God. It is only God. Only God could pull that off. I've actually got a few passages in the Bible app, if you want to go and read some stories later about how this plays out. His power can shine through best in desperate situations. So when we think about it, we realize what Paul realized when he boasts about his weaknesses. That in reality, like you were saying, Kenzie, it's not weakness. It's not actually weakness. It only looks like weakness it only feels like weakness but when we truly understand who is standing beside us i.e god we know we cannot possibly be weak because he is that strong and that brings us right back to the baby jesus was jesus vulnerable no how could he be vulnerable? Because God was looking after him. Was he open to infection? You bet. May have even got a bit sick. We don't know. Didn't kill him, though. Being hunted down by Herod? Yeah. Didn't catch him, though. Poor? Sure. Didn't die of starvation. Had everything he needed. All throughout his life, he was constantly put in situations where we would find it hopeless, but God was with him every step of the way. He was never weak. And that was never more true than at the end of his time on earth when he hung on a cross 
and he was being executed, and he was literally taking the life out of him. In the moment that is the ultimate weakness, the moment where all hope seemed to have completely been destroyed, the point that a hero, the lowest point a hero could ever get to, that was his greatest strength. That was the moment of his greatest victory. And that's the way God works. That's the hope that we have in little baby Jesus. His vulnerability shows us that our vulnerability is not vulnerability at all. It would be without Jesus. But because we have him, we may not escape the situations we find ourselves in. We may not escape difficulty. Jesus didn't. We may not escape poverty. Jesus didn't. We may not escape danger or or troubles or strife. They may be with us every day of our lives, but we will survive and thrive in it, even past death. Death itself cannot be our weakness. It is God's strength because he picks us right up after that and we're with him forever. There is no vulnerability this world can throw at us. There is no weakness this world can put us into that is too much for Jesus. That's the hope of our baby. That is the hope of the nativity. The poor, unspectacular, vulnerable baby that is the king of the world, the son of man, the ruler of nations. Isn't that cool? What a way to think about Christmas. I hope that that really kind of sinks in this season as we deal with the difficulties christmas can be one of the most difficult times of the year as we deal with loss as we deal with stress as we deal with difficult things of all time let's put our let's put our minds on the baby jesus and the strength he showed in vulnerability